Welcome back to New Books and Native American Studies. I'm Andrew Epstein, and thanks for listening to this podcast for the New Books Network. Each month, we pick a newly published work in Native American and Indigenous Studies and spend the hour speaking with the author. Anyone who's turned on the television since, well, television started, is familiar with the ubiquitous before and after picture. On the left, your present state, undesirable, out of shape, Add ingredient X, maybe a fad diet or a hair transplant, and the picture on the right holds your bright new future. While these juxtapositions might seem harmless enough, save for the whole manipulative advertising and self-esteem killing thing, they have a rather nefarious history in the United States. And like everything bound up with American past and present, it has a lot to do with race. The before and after pictures were a favorite of Richard Henry Pratt, founder of the Carlisle Indian School, where American Indian children from the newly pacified and incorporated West were brought thousands of miles to a military base near Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Once arrived, haggard by the exhausting and surely traumatic train ride, Pratt's photographer would snap a picture, emphasizing, to the point of props and bad lighting, the supposed savagery of these new arrivals, the before picture. Months later, once the students were fitted in contemporary Euro-American fashion, their hair cut off, and of course, better lighting added, the after photo was snapped. These dual images, attesting to the supposedly civilizing effects of the boarding school, were distributed to government elites and the American public, proof that the indigenous population of the continent could be molded in the image of the white settler. In his fascinating new book, The Art of Americanization, at the Carlisle Indian School, Hayes Peter Morrow brings to bear his considerable skills as an art historian to deconstruct this kind of visual culture produced at Carlisle. Who took these photos? Why were they so powerful? What cultural ideas did they play upon, what did they reveal, and what did they hide? In the numerous works addressing the federal assimilation campaign and the boarding school experience, the visual production of schools like Carlisle has escaped scholarly treatment. Until now. Hayes Peter Morrow's work is unsettling, surely, but also profound. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Dr. Morrow, welcome to New Books in Native American Studies. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Andrew. Glad to be here. Great. Well, today we're discussing your new book. It's called The Art of Americanization at the Carlisle Indian School. It's out from the University of New Mexico Press. This is really a unique and critical perspective on the boarding school experience that unpacks the aesthetic culture produced by instructors and students at Carlisle places them into the sordid historical context of Victorian-era pseudoscience and the federal assimilation campaign. In short, this book is fascinating, and I'm looking forward to diving into this rich material with you. But first, um, I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and and how you came to write this book. Certainly. I I, um, actually started out studying art history. I'm an art historian at uh, Florida Atlantic University uh, down in Boca Raton, Florida many years ago, and I went on to pursue my master's in art history at Florida State, and while I was there, I had a mentor uh, named Karen Bearer. She's a professor at FSU, and she was really the first person who got me into these intersections, as you mentioned a second ago, between race, pseudoscience, um, you know, institutions, and aesthetics, 
And I had a bit of that in the master's thesis that I wrote under her tutelage. Um, following that, I got my PhD at the CUNY Graduate Center uh, here in New York City, where I currently live and work. And my mentor there was Kathy Manthorne, and she sort of furthered my interest in the intersections between art and science. And so I wound up writing this book, actually, originally as a doctoral dissertation, and then, of course, uh, you know, had to rewrite it extensively to put it in book form. Um, and so that's how the project kind of had its genesis. Um, and currently, I'm teaching at the City University of New York at Queensborough Community College. It's one of our undergraduate campuses, and I teach art history, of course. And I teach a variety of different classes there, including American art. Um, and that's about it, the executive summary for me, I guess. So that's how the book came about, and that's where I am right now in my career. Mm. How, did you, how did you get interested in this subject? Well, um, specifically in terms of Native Americans, I mean, as I said, I had a broader kind of longer-running interest in art and science and how the two intersect. Um, I came across uh, these photographs while I was a Ph.D. student at the CUNY Graduate Center, and um, I was writing a paper for my mentor, Kathy Manthorne, who I mentioned a moment ago as well. And we were talking, I think the class was about American art and visual culture um, in the post-Civil War period. And so I don't recall exactly, but somehow I came across the before and after image, the very famous one I have in my book of the Navajo student, Tom Torlino. And I was looking at that image, and it fascinated me, and I was wondering, oh, why was this made? How was it made? Uh, who made it? And so I started investigating that as part of a paper I was writing on the pseudoscience of phrenology. And that really um, got me you know, started down the road of you know, looking at Carlisle as an institution at which um, I perceived it as being a nexus for a lot of these, these discourses, the pseudoscience, the assimilation, as you mentioned, um, race, ethnicity, gender, uh, class as well um, in American culture during uh, what we generally call the Gilded Age, like, mm. you know, sort of from the end of the Civil War through the early 20th century. So for, for our listeners who might not be familiar, um, what exactly was the Carlisle Indian School uh, and who were its key players? Just lay this out for us. Yeah, the Carlisle School was a off-reservation boarding school. Um, and it was founded by an act of Congress in 1879, and it was intended for the assimilation and so-called Americanization of Native American youths. Um, the key players were several. Uh, the driving force behind the founding of the school, although it was officially founded, of course, by Congress, it was a federal boarding school, but the real driving force was an individual named uh, Richard Henry Pratt. He was a army officer who had served in the U.S. Army for um, the Union during the Civil War. And after the war, Pratt served as sort of like a ranger or a scout on the frontier. Um, he, it was his job basically to go out there and round up the um, most subversive uh, Native American warriors, that is, those people who were seen as the biggest threat to uh, Anglo-American advancement and settlement on the frontier. He was supposed to round these people up, which he did, and um, bring them to a prison located at the uh, federal military prison at Fort Marion, Florida, which he did. He transported the captives to this prison. And eventually he started thinking, well, maybe I can do more with these prisoners. Maybe instead of 
you know, just having them in this prison, I can help them. I can improve them, quote unquote. That was a big idea at the time, uh, improvement. So he started lobbying Congress um, for funds to use um, the site at Carlisle, which had previously been um, a military barracks and training ground that had been used by the Department of War. And uh, there was a lot of skepticism uh, about Pratt's ideas about education and assimilation of the Indian. But enough people supported him in Congress, and he also lobbied Rutherford B. Hayes, uh, who was the president at the time, uh, the president of the United States. And through his political efforts, he eventually received funding and the facility. And then Congress voted to uh, you know, establish the school. So that's basically, in a, a very brief nutshell, how Carlisle was established. In terms of the, the photographs that, um, that you discovered from, from Carlisle, yeah. Where did you track these down? I mean, how is how is the research process for this book? Is is Carlisle uh, is Carlisle School still intact in Pennsylvania in terms of it having having an archive, or did these end up elsewhere? Well, that's a very good question, and this is um, both kind of um, a pleasure in researching the book, but also a real problem that I had as well. Um, the quick answer is most of the photographs are at a place called the Cumberland County Historical Society, and that is an institution that is currently still operating. It's the Historical Society in the town of Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and uh, it's just a few miles from the site of the old Indian school. Today, the Indian school is the Army War College, where officers are sent for special training and combat training and intelligence training. So the facility is partially intact, and a lot of the buildings from the time are actually still there. And when I was initially researching this, I went to Carlisle, and I went to the Historical Society, and I was fortunate enough to run into a woman named Barb Landis, who was the curator of uh, the Carlisle materials. And she actually took me on a personal tour of the Army War College, the former Indian school. And I saw, you know, I recognized from the uh, photographs, a lot of the buildings were still there. And so that was, you know, a really, you know, good opportunity to have. And um, I also uh, worked a lot with Richard Tritt, who was the curator of photographs at the uh, Cumberland County Historical Society. And he was very helpful as well in this project. So most of the photos were there. And they um, also have photos uh, dispersed in other locations around the country. For example, Yale University's Beinecke Library has the um, archive of Richard Henry Pratt's papers. They're called the Pratt Papers and their collection of Western Americana. So I went up there to Yale to do some research for a while. Uh, I was down in D.C. at the National Archives. They have some of the photographs as well as um, the Library of Congress and um, even the Smithsonian Institution Archives has a lot of Pratt's correspondences. So the, you know, the documents and the photographs were really spread out across the northeastern United States. But ultimately, you know, they were accessible and um, I was lucky to run into a lot of really nice folks who, um, you know, facilitated my research. That's a fascinating collection of photographs. Um... Yeah, they are <laughs> quite well. Yeah, um, and I'll re return to a few of them uh, later on. But uh, I'm imagining that uh, many of our listeners uh, are not familiar with the so-called science of phrenology, and I want to turn yes. to the pseudoscience here. Um, obviously, phrenology has gone quite out of fashion uh, among yes. anthropologists and the like. Um, but 
You point out that its predominance in scientific discourse, popular discourse in the 19th century, is key to understanding yes. uh, the aesthetics of Americanization at Carlisle. So, uh, what is phrenology, and, and you know, what is this, and why are these uh, pseudosciences important to the story you tell here? Well, wow, that's a great question. Um, phrenology. To understand phrenology, we sort of we have to go back to the roots of phrenology, which are actually in the Enlightenment in Europe in the 18th century. And I talk about this extensively in one of the chapters in my book. Um, the science was gradually developed by a series of um, intellectuals in Europe um, in the 19th century. I would say most notably among them um, would be a man named Lavater. Um, he was actually a Protestant minister, but he was also an amateur um, – I guess today we would call him pseudoscientist. And he first developed um, – what would later become phrenology as a method um, by which one could discern the character of an individual, that is the internal psychic state of an individual, by examining that person's external physiological features as seen in the face and the shape of the head and the proportions of those things. Um, Lavater's ideas were controversial, but eventually they caught on. And a young doctor from Germany um, named Gall, G-A-L-L, was one of Lavater's followers, and one of Gall's followers um, was Johann Gaspar uh, Spurzheim, um, who was another German physician. And it was really through Spurzheim that phrenology became popularized in the English-speaking world. He had adherents in Scotland, especially. And uh, also in the United States. And this was now, we're talking the early 1800s. Um, once it makes its way to America, the pseudoscience of phrenology gains a lot of adherence, mostly among the Anglo-American um, upper classes, the intellectuals, because they see it as a means by which um, – as Lavater had stated a few decades earlier, it was a way to sort of get a read on a person, almost literally. You could read their face. You could read their skull, um, you know, and see, well, okay, if they have this shape or that shape, that means that they are this type of person or that type of person, you know, intellectually or morally. And what happened was phrenology took on a more, shall we say, kind of conspicuous characteristic in the U.S. during the antebellum era. Um, because in the decades leading up to the Civil War, as you know, there was an increasing controversy about, okay, what are we going to do with the Native Americans on the frontier? And also, um, you know, the issue of slavery, of course, was one of the driving central issues in American culture at this time. And so phrenology was used by some – um, not everybody, but by some people to say, well, um, if you look at the skulls and the, therefore the supposed cranial capacity and intelligence of Anglo-Americans, say, as opposed to Irish Americans or German Americans or better yet, African Americans or Native Americans, you can see that, well, clearly, um, from the shape and the proportion and the size of the, uh, you know, crown or the top of the skull, Anglo-Americans are more uh, fully human and more evolved. So therefore, perhaps uh, some people reasoned, well, um, slavery was not all that bad because, well, we're taking these people who, you know, have lower cranial capacities than um, we do, and we're sort of taking care of them. They need us to take care of them. And this was 
kind of the beginning of the boarding school discourse was that, well, these people are uncivilized or at least less civilized. And so, well, a good thing we can do is instead of eradicating them or doing violence to them would be to try to re-educate them and bring them up to speed in, in social evolutionary terms. And so phrenology was really the underpinning um, for a lot of these ideas and a lot of these uh, so-called, you know, sort of reform or improvement projects um, in this country in the 19th century. And really the influence, um, although it waned, it stayed around into the early 20th century, if you can believe it. So it didn't just go away, you know, automatically. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. How you can, um, you know, while a number of people did uh, renounce it or moved past it, um, you know, you say that it, it kind of gets accommodated and reconfigured in other um, ascendant ideologies in the post Civil War period, assimilation. Absolutely. Segregation. Yeah. yeah. And it actually became a key element in what would become criminology as well. Remember, a a lot of times the Native Americans, um, especially Native American men, were perceived as having um, criminal tendencies. That is, they were untrustworthy. They were given to violence. Um, you know, they couldn't be trusted with white women, a similar myth that we have with about African-American men at the time. Um, so a lot of these, you know, racist ideas um, were really, you know, sort of under written by phrenology and in criminology there were several important criminologists both in Europe and the US I'm thinking for example of Alphonse Bertillon um, with his synoptic tables and also in this country Thomas Burns who was a chief uh, detective inspector with the New York Police Department around this time they used um, photographs of you know criminals members of the so-called criminal class or the underclass and Specifically, Bertillon especially said that, well, you could look at um, a synoptic table that showed a comparison, a side-by-side -side comparison of the facial structure of the criminal, their noses, their eyes, their forehead, their chin, their mouth, uh, how far apart the facial features were. And from this, you could discern, um, you know, if they were a criminal, A, and B, what type of criminal they were. It got really specific. Mm. So, yeah, absolutely. It ties in with, um, you know, in some senses, anthropology, uh, criminology and, and certainly, you know, the, the assimilation movement. Mm. You know, you, you get at this tension in, in the book, and I'm hoping to bring it out here, which is that it's interesting that uh, Pratt, who, who you say um, many people disagreed with in Washington because he, uh, you know, he took the sort of optimistic position that, yes. you know, yeah. through this education and, the, you know, Indians can become Recivilized or, or made into citizens, but around him is this scientific discourse that, if anything, says would seem to me said quite the opposite. That no matter what you do with somebody, their sort of innate biological characteristics are going to hold them back from uh, from whatever social setting that you put them in. Um, yeah. So how did that play out for someone like Pratt at, at Carlisle? How did he balance uh, you know yeah. this pseudoscience that tells you that? you know, racial characteristics and are innate, uh, and, and the sort of, uh, you know, assimilationist campaign that he clearly bought into. Yeah, that's a very, very good question. And it's interesting you bring that up because part of the impetus for Carlisle and what, one of the things Pratt tried to do when he was trying to convince people of the validity of his project was, was that he had, when he had the prisoners at Fort Marion, um, 
he had a few dozen of them. I forget the exact number. I think it was around 70 or 72 prisoners. He had a famous artist named Clark Mills come down from Washington to make what are called um, basically life masks of the prisoners. So what Mills did was that he brought um, a batch of plaster, and basically he had each prisoner sit in a chair, and he um, encased their heads in wet plaster, and they had to sit there and endure this until the plaster dried. And so then after it dried, Mills uh, cracked it apart, then he put it back together, and he formed bust portraits, um, artistic bus portraits from the plaster life masks that he had made. And these were then sent um, to the Smithsonian Institution to a man named Spencer Baird, uh, who was one of the leading scientists uh, of the day. And he was also um, a head curator at the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History. And um, Pratt basically said, well, I had this phrenologist. Mills was an active phrenologist. Um, I had this phrenologist slash artist come down to uh, make impressions of the prisoners for you, Mr. Baird, and I want you to use them in your museum to give the American people a sense of this vanishing race, this this dying race. And uh, so they'll be there for posterity. And so Baird used the uh, subsequent busts for what are called lay figures um, in dioramas at the Natural History Museum to give subsequent generations of Americans a idea of how Native Americans lived um, prior to, you know, white incursion on the frontier. So Pratt did this, and he said, well, basically, yes, these, crim- these people have these criminal tendencies, perhaps, but his view was that, well, while they may have evolved to a certain point um, up till the time, he was optimistic, as you said, in saying, well, we can take them and we can change them. Um, and part of this, to understand this, we need to understand as well that Pratt was a very devout Christian. Um, he was a devout Protestant, and, and he really, you know, religious training was a big part of the education at Carlisle. And he felt that these so-called criminals, uh, quote-unquote, really could be reformed and that these uh, you know, so-called sciences could be defied. Um, through the rigorous uh, religious training, the paramilitary training, um, teaching them English, um, changing their clothing, cutting their hair off, um, basically, you know, sort of changing everything about them. And his view was, well, you know, maybe we can defy evolution. Maybe we can defy the dictates of pseudoscience and, um, you know, make these people into Americans. So he had a very, uh, you're right to ask this, he had a very kind of sticky relationship um, with, um, you know, the pseudoscience of phrenology. That's fascinating. Um, I want to talk about uh, photography now. Um, As you write, uh, Richard Henry Pratt was quite keen on photography to represent and bolster his projects of Americanization and civilization. So just talk broadly about the, the role of photography um, in assimilation campaigns it's, and its particular uses at the Carlisle Indian School, as you see them? Well, photography, um, again, in order to understand the use of photography at Carlisle, we need to know a little bit about the history of photography in the 19th century. Of course, photography was invented concurrently in France and Great Britain in the 1820s and 30s. And um, by, of course, Daguerre and uh, Fox Talbot, um, two of the early developers of photography. And it made its way to America in the 1840s, um, 
And it uh, through Morse, actually, uh, the inventor of the Morse code. Morse was also a, a well-known painter and diplomat at the time. And um, so once it starts disseminating in America, of course, Americans are fascinated by photography because we are a very sort of like um, empirical kind of people. We like things proven to us. We like, you know, documentation. We like objective seeming images. And so photography caught on very quickly and broadly in the U.S. in the 1840s and 50s and leading up to the Civil War. And um, even into the 1870s and 80s, there was this notion in the United States, especially, but also in Europe to some degree, that the photograph was somehow a image, a new type of image that was modern. It was emblematic of the Enlightenment. Um, it was something that was because it captured the, the rays of the sun um, on you know, a chemically treated surface that it was somehow beyond human intervention. It was something that was beyond subjectivity. So therefore, when you looked at a photograph, the popular idea was that what you saw was an exact and accurate replica of the actual thing itself, the subject of the photograph. And because of this, um, belief in the integrity and the infallibility of the photographic image, Pratt knew this. He was a very smart man, and he said, well, I'm starting this new school, and what is one of the ways I can get these politicians to maintain their sort of faith or their backing in my project? And, well, his answer was, we can um, use photographs, right? Um, and so the idea he had was to uh, eventually start using the before and after portrait, and this gets back to the image of Tom Torlino that I mentioned earlier. Um, we can use these before and after portraits to show the general public, um, the politicians in Washington, the, the administrators at the Interior Department, that the re-education process is working. So therefore, he would have a photograph made um, by the way, his friend John Choate was um, the official photographer for Carlisle from 1879 up until I think it was um, 1902 when Choate passed away. Um, but we, he would have this photographer, John Choate, who lived in Carlisle, photograph the new arrivals when they got there from the reservation straight off the train. They would go straight to Choate's um, studio and they'd be photographed. And of course, they looked exhausted. They looked confused. They looked terrified in the, in the before pictures very often. Um, then in the after pictures, they would be photographed a few months or a few years later. And of course, their external appearance had been by then completely altered. Uh, they would be wearing a Victorian era middle class uh, suit. Um, if they were male, if they were female, they would have you know the female equivalent um, in terms of fashion. Their their hair would be chopped if they were male. The the textiles and the the jewelry that many of them previously wore uh, would be gone. And um, you would see what Choate would do. He would put in props as well um, in the photographs with uh, the people. You see this in the case of White Buffalo, the famous Cheyenne warrior. Um, he would use props to either on one hand primitivize the Indian subjects in the before photograph or, um, quote, civilize them in the after photograph. And so one thing he would do, for example, would be to change the lighting. And so in the Torlino portrait, we see the 
dimmer lighting in the before portrait, which renders Torlino as a darker looking figure. And in the after portrait, Schott would turn the lighting up in the studio so that Torlino would then look, um, you know, lighter skinned and therefore the association at the time was, well, he was more civilized. Um, and so certainly, you know, the, the objectivity of the photograph or the seeming objectivity of the photograph, but also ironically, the manipulation of the photographic process both played into, um, the popular perception after a while that Carlisle was indeed a viable institution of assimilation. Why do you think Carlisle, um, was so far, uh, from any, major center of Indian population at the time. I mean, you mentioned that, you know, you mentioned that a lot of these students had just come off these incredibly long transcontinental yes. railroad trips. Yeah. Um, do you think there was an intentionality behind having it so far from uh, where larger populations of uh, Native Americans were? Absolutely. And that's really one of the keys um, to Pratt's uh, sort of strategy. Um, what he said was um, he had a term he used for Native Americans who lived on reservations. He called them blanket Indians. Uh, that was meant to be a derogatory term. And it implied that they were sort of, you know, stuck in the mud. They, um, you know, had the supposed characteristics of Indians who lived on reservations. That is, um, they bought into traditional Native American superstitions and beliefs, what he saw as superstitions. Remember, he was a Christian. Um, he saw that, uh, to his eyes, they were somehow communal. They lacked initiative. Uh, they were not, um, they had not yet internalized the Puritan work ethic. Um, you know, and so all of these things needed to be changed. And his idea was, well, if we take them away from their families, from their extended kinship networks and from the reservation more broadly, we can break these cultural ties and bring them to Carlisle, which was hundreds, if not thousands of miles away from most of the reservations that he recruited at. And by having them so far away for extended periods of time, this was the only way he thought that one could break their culture, one could break their ties and fully assimilate them into a functional um, at least approximation of a, you know, sort of middle class, this idealized middle class Anglo-American individual. So, yes, absolutely. The, the location of Carlisle um, in the northeast um, was critical to the success of the school because most of the reservations, for example, you know, um, Pine Ridge, the Sioux Reservation was way out in, in you know, the Dakota territories. Um, the Navajos were, you know, over at Bosque Redondo, which was a virtual concentration camp, frankly, um, over in the southwest. Um, and so they had to come thousands of miles. And, and this was a real, you know, foundational uh, cornerstone of Pratt's methodology of assimilation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, while most of these photographs reflect um, the colonial gaze, so to speak, of, of Pratt or yes. Choate, there were some instances of native photographers at Carlisle. You talk a bit about um, a student named John Leslie. Um, yes. How does his story and sort of native uh, f photographers, you know, complicate the story at Carlisle? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, John Leslie is a very, very rare figure in, in the history of 19th century photography. Um, or for that matter, really, the history of photography up until quite recently. 
Um, with John Leslie, you have an indigenous photographer. Um, now, this has become more common, especially in art photography in the late 20th century during what you know we call the postmodern or postcolonial era. Um, but back then, that was really unheard of. This is remember Leslie was working, um, you know, kind of like in the 1890s, and he had studied photography under Choate. Actually, what the students did was. Uh, Pratt had a program called the outing system or the outing program, and they would be so-called outed to various craftsmen or um, even families um, in the town of Carlisle. And they would be sent there with the purpose, of course, of having them learn various trades. Uh, So a lot of the girls were sent to white homes to learn to be domestics or maids or cooks or nannies or something like that. And a lot of the boys would be sent um, to various uh, businesses in town. And in the case of Leslie, uh, he was sent to Choate Studio. And so he picked up photography there. And eventually, Pratt actually saw this as a good thing because he illustrated one of the yearly uh, catalogs for Carlisle. He put out uh, periodically these catalogs that he would publish and then send out to you know parents and, and members of Congress and you know uh, financial supporters of the school show, oh, great, look what's going on at Carlisle. And one year, he used many of Leslie's photographs to actually illustrate um, his catalog. And he thought by doing this that, well, you know, what I'm doing here is I'm showing that a native can pick up a, you know, uh, what it was perceived at the time as a white man trade, in this case photography, and he can become technically proficient at it and competent. And therefore, this proves that, well, given the proper you know, set of circumstances, that indeed the Native students could be um, effectively assimilated into the workforce. And so in that sense, um, Leslie's photographs were important for him because not only did they tend to show um, you know, a generally positive um, view of the school, um, albeit one that was uh, different than the view that we get from other, you know, photographers, white photographers who worked at Carlisle, but still, in general, Pratt deemed the images worthy of inclusion. But more importantly, it showed that um, Leslie could be trained and re-educated and assimilated into the workforce. And this is really ultimately what Pratt wanted to do at Carlisle. Who was uh, Frances Benjamin Johnston? How does how does she come into this story here? Frances Benjamin Johnston, a fascinating figure, um, another rarity actually in the history of photography in the 1800s. Uh, she was a woman, first of all, um, which made her uncommon as a professional photographer at the time. Uh, she was from a wealthy family in Washington D.C. and um, she really uh, learned photography early on in life, and um, she studied uh, for a while um, under a man named uh, John Smiley. And Smiley was the official photographer for the aforementioned Smithsonian Institution. So we have some connections here institutionally. Um, Johnson was a technically, as you can see from the reproductions in my book, a very proficient photographer. And she and Pratt, it's thought that they met initially in 1893 at the World's uh, Columbian Exposition in Chicago. Um, And Pratt had a pavilion 
Carlisle there at the um, at the, the World's Fair in 1893, um, and the pavilion was sponsored by the government, um, by the Smithsonian and Department of the Interior to, of course, display that, well, look how far the natives have come at Carlisle. Um, but in any event, he met uh, Johnston there, and she also was taking photographs at the uh, World's Fair. And so they developed a correspondence and a relationship over the years. And eventually, in 1901, Pratt wound up hiring Francis Benjamin Johnston to illustrate of the uh, yearly uh, catalog publications of Carlisle. And I use a lot of these photographs as illustrations um, in my book. And so Johnston um, came to Carlisle twice in 1901, and she photographed the students in various settings around campus. And these photographs were intended by Pratt. He had editorial control over them. They were intended to really display the full gamut and richness of life at the institution. So, for example, the students were shown training in the workshops on campus, learning trades. They were shown in leisure moments, um, really strange stuff. At one point, you have an image of young female students playing croquet on one of the uh, green spaces on campus, um, you know, as if they were mimicking these kind of upper middle class leisure pursuits. Um, in another photograph, for example, you have a young male student um, with a hoe and a horse in a field showing that he had acquired agricultural skills um, while at the school and during the outing program, presumably. So Johnston's images, um, you know, really represent a variety of views of the school. There were classroom images showing how the children were being taught how to read and write in English, how they're being taught, you know, the, the so-called proper or dominant narratives in American history. Um, so, you know, her photographs uh, were, you know, again, very important for Pratt in, in publicizing the supposed success of the various uh, programs at the school. But Johnston was especially important for Pratt because she was a internationally recognized photographer by 1901. Choate was a provincial photographer. He was well known around Pennsylvania, uh, but Johnston had connections. She was from the upper class. She grew up in D.C. She knew a lot of the politicians. Um, in fact, she was personal friends with Theodore Roosevelt, the, the president. Um, she knew people in New York. So Pratt knew very correctly that she was a good person to network with and that if he had photographs from her, uh, perhaps that would really bolster his case um, for the success of Carlisle. Now, I think if, if people have heard of Carlisle, it's likely in the context of Jim Thorpe um, and you know, yes, football yes. player. I mean, uh, I've driven through uh, rural Pennsylvania numerous times. There are. Uh, there, there's a Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania, actually. There's a name of a town after him, and um, right. there, you know, there are a number of billboards about it. And, and obviously, he's obviously just a well-known character in American sports yes. history. Now, you do talk about um, the football program at Carlisle. And, yes. And talk a little bit about that. Where does, where does this come in? Well, it's interesting you mentioned Jim Thorpe. Um, a little personal aside, my parents are actually uh, in Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania, this week, uh, taking a little mini vacation. Um, but in any wow. event, yes, um, Jim Thorpe uh, was probably the most famous uh, student to have ever attended Carlisle, of course. I mean, there were other well-known students. 
incidents, uh, for example, Carlos Montezuma, who was a went on to be a successful physician, Luther Standing Bear, who went on to a career in entertainment um, in Hollywood, actually, interestingly. But Jim Thorpe is really, you know, an internationally known, uh, as, as you say, athletic figure. Um, the, the football program started at Carlisle um, in the 1890s. Um, and at first Pratt did not like it. Um, one of the students, uh, one of the players in an early football game actually broke his leg. Pratt was horrified. He thought that this may be the end of the school, that the publicity from this would be so negative that, um, you know, <laughs> that the, the school may be shut down. Um, however, interestingly, a group of male students, approached Pratt and said, well, we want to keep the program, um, Mr. Pratt, um, or perhaps I should say by this point, Colonel Pratt, um, you know, because we want to compete with the football programs at the Anglo schools. Specifically, they played schools like Harvard. Um, they played schools like the University of Pennsylvania. Um, I believe at one point they played the University of, um, I believe it was actually Yale, uh, you know, some of the Ivy League, the best schools in the country. Um, so, you know, they wanted to show that they could compete um, on a literally on a level playing field uh, with um, white athletes. And so Pratt reluctantly agreed to um, continue the program. And the program was quite successful, as you note. And eventually Jim Thorpe came along. And he was a star athlete. He played many sports, uh, not just at the school, but later, um, I believe it was in the 1912 Olympics, uh, Jim Thorpe was a multiple medal winner. Um, and so the football program really was important to Pratt. Eventually, he came to accept it because for him, it showed, well, um, you know, the, the, the native students can compete not only intellectually, um, and on the job market, but also athletically with the white uh, programs. Now, this was important because, as the historian David Wallace Adams tells us, at the time, football was seen as sort of a metaphor for war and for business competition and for a host of you know, masculine endeavors. And so in that sense, it was proving the masculinity um, of the male students at the school, that they were up for the challenge, that they could, you know, hold their own in the competitive um, give and take of the capitalist system. Um, and so Pratt really came to appreciate the football program um, largely because of those things. Fascinating. Um so, you know, as, as we come to a close here, I want to ask you just a couple of questions about what you see as um, the legacy of the artistic production uh, at Carlisle School, first of all. Um, and also just okay. um, and also just curious, you know, Carlisle comes to a close in 1918, I believe. Yes. Um, right. And, I, you know, I want to get a sense of, of why. I mean, when why is it that Carlisle comes to a close and uh, yeah, and what, what do you see as its legacy going forward? Okay, well, um, in terms of the closure of the school, it, it, it started to politically lose favor eventually. Um, this is kind of a complicated story. As we get into the early 1900s and the Native Americans have been successfully, um, shall we say, quelled on the frontier by military efforts, 
efforts and by you know things like the Dawes Act and the General Allotment Act, where they facilitated the the dividing up of uh, former Indian lands for white settlers for settlement and for agriculture and mining and things like that. Um, as all of this really uh, you know unfolded through the late 19th century, and it was clear that well the native were now on the reservations. There was no longer organized resistance on the frontier from them. There was a backlash against assimilation. There were a lot of um, white intellectuals who argue, um, and, and actually the art historian Elizabeth Hutchinson has a really good book um, out about this. Uh, she calls this phenomenon the, the Indian craze. Um, a lot of white intellectuals sort of bought into this Indian craze. Uh, which was, well, okay, now we're sort of feeling um, a backlash. We're feeling a bit of guilt about what we've done to these people. So now what people wanted to see, especially educated middle and upper classes, was they wanted to see a return to authenticity. They wanted Indian arts and crafts to come back and Indian clothing and rituals. And increasingly, this became a mode of aesthetic consumption for the a lot of artists and photographers and, and art collectors from Northeast, who now were demanding all of a sudden, well, um, you know, we need to preserve the Indian heritage. So let's have, you know, the Indian practices, the arts and the crafts come back again. And because of this, um, people like Pratt and institutions like Carlisle gradually began to um, lose their, their, their fashionability, so to speak, um, among these audiences. And um, so the school, uh, the political will was really declining um, because of these cultural reasons. There was also uh, increasing problems at the school with student delinquency. There were charges of abuse at the school. I should note that Pratt left in 1904. Um, he was sort of forced out um, the Roosevelt administration. Uh, really, at that point, he, Roosevelt was president. He didn't really approve of Pratt's um, administrative methods any longer. He thought they were sort of outdated, as I've been saying. And there were newer um, you know, superintendents of Carlisle as we move forward, um, including this man named Moses Friedman. Um, and eventually, uh, during the post-Pratt era, the, not only was the school falling out of political and cultural favor, but there were students who were making uh, charges of various forms of abuse that were occurring um, on campus, there were uh, increasing incidents of alcoholism, of student delinquency. Um, and so because of a combination of these reasons, there were eventually hearings at Congress, actually. Um, and one student, I believe his name was uh, Montreville Yuda, um, he was claiming that, you know, there were all these forms of dereliction and abuse happening at the school and the administration was not handling it. Um, so he testified at these hearings at Congress, and um, a lot of the people at Congress, the senators and the representatives agreed with him, and eventually funding was pulled for Carlisle. And so the school was shut down, as you correctly point out, in 1918. Um, in terms of the legacy, though, of the photographs, especially at Carlisle, they continue with us today. And I talked about this in the version of the text that was my doctoral dissertation, um, not so much in the book itself. I edited a lot of this out. But if we look at American visual culture in the late 20th century, what do we see? Um, even today, the before and after image is still prominent. It's still with us, right? We can see it in illustrating the supposed beneficial effects of the latest 
you know, trendy diet, uh, workout routine, plastic surgery. This is an American thing. How do I improve myself? How do I make myself better than what I currently am? Um, And, you know, this logic of the before and after image, uh, this sort of evolutionary visual logic uh, from going from the old person to the new person, um, I think is still very much with us in television and on the Internet and um, in various other ways. And so certainly I think that the visual legacy of Carlisle, um, you know, is, is still in places like it is still significant for us in, you know, so-called, you know, postmodern or postcolonial America. Hmm. Well, I've been speaking with uh, Dr. Hayes Peter Morrow about his new book, The Art of Americanization at Carlisle Indian School. It's out from the University of New Mexico Press. Now, I know you've just finished this impressive book, but I usually like to um, end these interviews by asking uh, what you are, or what you hope to work on next. Is this um, is, is American Indian, uh, uh, you know, artistic production in terms of is that something that you want to continue on, you think? You know, uh, that's a very good question. And for the past few months, I've been exploring various avenues of research. Um, you know, to be honest, I'm, I'm sort of moving into different areas right now. And I'm interested in the visual culture of spirituality in America, um, which in a sense is related to Carlisle, and also the visual culture or representation of masculinity in American cultural history, which again is sort of, you know, in some sense related to what happened to Carlisle. Um, So I am sort of migrating around a bit into newer areas, but I'm always interested in what we art historians refer to as visual culture, that is the broader visual environment, not just painting and sculpture, but, you know, other aspects of the visual environment that surrounds us every day. Um, And I'm interested in some newer topics that I've been looking at. Um, Specifically, I've been interested in Puritanism and, and as I said, American spirituality and how it relates to um, the, the notion of millennialism and how we Americans seem to always be, you know, on the edge of something or on the, the you know, crest of a new change or a new era, either personally or collectively. And right now I'm investigating areas of how a lot of these ideas intersect, um, you know, and, and how they're, you know, subsequently represented uh, visually in the culture by either artists or even you know, by other visual producers, uh, television networks or website uh, engineers or, you know, things of that nature. So um, that's kind of where I've been going more recently in the past few months. Hmm. Well, I very much look forward to that if it comes to fruition. Um, Dr. Morrow, thank you so much for joining me today. really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Andrew. I appreciate your time and I appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. You've been listening to an interview with Hayes Peter Morrow, author of The Art of Americanization at the Carlisle Indian School from the University of New Mexico Press. If you're listening through our iTunes channel, you should find us on the web at newbooksinnativeamericanstudies.com, where you can listen to all the past podcasts. Also, like our Facebook page, where you can post questions, comments, or suggestions for new books you'd like to hear discussed on this program. For the New Books Network, I'm Andrew Epstein, and I hope you join us again next month for another new book in Native American Studies. Thanks.